Again, good morning to everyone. And uh, for those who are guests, I always like to point out, because you wouldn't know this, but there's a gold insert in your service folder. And if that can be a blessing to you as we uh, study God's word together, um, invite you to, uh, to take it out and to use it. Um, as we get into this last week called uh, of the series, um, I wanted to start today, kind of wake you up, make sure that you're with me um, by playing a little bit of a game together. Okay, and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to get out of your seat. You don't have to do anything crazy. But this game is called Worthless or Worth Something. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look. I've got some paintings up on the screen. And you've got to determine whether that particular painting is worthless or worth something. And I came up with a creative title, Worthless or Worth Something. Okay, see how that goes? All right, should be pretty easy. So here's, here's the first one. So, and, and this is, you can just kind of yell out your answer if you'd like. I especially want to hear Jason make sure that he's awake. Worthless or worth something? Anyone? Okay, I heard more worth something. Um, actually, this is painted, I pulled it off the internet. This is painted by a sixth grader um, in art class. And, and so actually, um, it's probably worth something to her parents, but for you and I, uh, pretty worthless. How about this one? Worthless or worth something? Worthless or worth something? Worthless. Worthless, yeah. That's what I would say, too. Um, actually, this is a, a painting that's entitled, um, untitled. It doesn't have a title, but it uh, was painted by a person named Blinky Palmero, and it, uh, it sold for $1.7 million. So, eh, worth something. Worth, all right, next one. Worthless or worth something? <laughs> Worthless, yeah, I think so too. But this one is entitled Green White. You know, it's as creative as worthless or worth something. Green White, it was painted, uh, I don't even know who, Ellsworth Kelly, a little cheaper, $1.6 million. Next one, worth, uh, are we stuck? Worthless or worth something? Here we go. What do you think? Hmm, now you don't know what to say, right? <laughs> worthless. All right. It is worthless. Um, uh, painted by a 12th grader. They put, like, you know, tape on it, and then you paint, and then you pull the tape off. So that, not worth a lot. And then the last one. This is a very creative painting that takes a lot of, uh, a lot of work and imagination. Um, worthless or worth something? I think it's, I feel like it's worthless, but this was uh, also untitled. I don't know why it would be called untitled. Um, Mark Rothko, $28 million. <laughs> now, some of you might have an eye for art. It doesn't sound like you do, actually, but, <laughs> and would be able to easily figure out um, which of these paintings were worth millions. Uh, but the reality is, uh, much like you, I don't have a clue. And in fact, if I were to sort of categorize which of those I thought took the most skill, it'd be the sixth graders pear painting more than any uh, of the others. And, and so how to figure out whether a painting is worthless or worth something, basically, here's what you need to do. Its value is determined by how much a person is willing to pay for it. I mean, that's at the end of the day. Uh, the value of a painting, I mean, that orange, I mean, it, it's determined by 
how much someone's willing to pay for it. Now, um, I don't know how many art connoisseurs we have, and many of us probably don't care a whole lot about art, and so how much or how a piece of art is valued isn't a big deal to us. But let me ask a different question that I know affects you and hits closer to home. How do you determine how much you're worth? How do you determine, in the midst of this world, um, your value, your worth? Uh, that's a question that hits home, isn't it? And the honest truth is that this is one of the things that concerns me most about soon being a parent of, of teenagers. Here's why. Because I know how cruel the world is, huh? And I know how much I value my kids, and I want them to know how much I value them. But once you get into the cruel world, and as you get older, especially into those teenage years, um, it becomes a whole lot more difficult. And, and, and in, in high school or, or middle school or even college, your, your value, your worth, I mean, one thing that gets, de how it gets determined is by how you look, right? And, and moment of objectivity here at church, if we could. Um, how dumb it is to find your inerrant value and self-worth based on something that for the most part you can't even control. And by the way, who determines what's pretty and what's not? I mean, they don't get it right with paintings. How does society or culture get it right with us? Or do they? They don't. And yet that's how some kids find their value. It's how they look. Or maybe another, maybe a different one, how many friends they have or don't have. Or how well you can throw a round orange ball through a iron rim. Or how far you can throw a ball. Or how fast you are. Or how high you can jump. Or what honor roll you're on. Now, are all of those things okay? Do we need to give up all those things? Oh, no. But that is far different than finding your value in those things, in finding the basis of your self-worth. And, and at this point, um, I'm guessing that most of you adults forgot that I was talking about kids. Because we face the exact same thing. Have you ever had it happen that you felt like you were more valuable inerrantly, self-worth, when you were, you know, kicking butt at work and having a good quarter? And then when you don't get the job promotion or when you don't have a great quarter or when the project doesn't go so well, then all of a sudden inerrant value and self-worth goes down the tubes and you don't feel valuable anymore. I mean, is it bad to have a, a bad quarter? It's not fun. Should we find our value and self-worth in that? I hope not. Because when we find our value by comparing ourselves to other people, or by, uh, should I say, <clears throat> accomplishments, here's what happens. You will never feel good about yourself because you're going to have to continue to make a certain standard or a certain goal and will be continually comparing yourselves to others. And so as I think about my kids who are entering the difficult teenage years, you know what difficult teenage years transition into? The difficult young adult years, you know what that transitions into? The difficult middle age years, and that transitions into the difficult retirement years, right? We need to be reminded again and again 
of where we get our value from and how much we are valuable. And in fact, it kind of goes back to paintings. Do you know how at the end of the day, and then we're going to talk about it, but do you know at the end of the day how you find your value? Same way paintings do. Here's our, our first fill-in. Your value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for you. And that doesn't change with how good of a quarter you have or what size of clothes you wear or don't wear or whatever it might be. Your value is determined by, someone, by what someone is willing to pay for you. And, and actually, that brings us then to our crossword for the week uh, because atonement is all about this. Now, the basic definition for atonement, like the easy-to-remember, short amount of words uh, sort of definition is this, to make up for a wrong. That's the, the, the definition, simply put, for atonement, to make up for a wrong. But in order for you and I to better get an idea of, of biblical atonement, um, we're going to have to you know, have a little longer sermon than that. Um, we're going to go back to the uh, Old Testament to start. And atonement is all over that word, is all over the Old Testament. And in fact, what we need to do is, is we need to talk about worship in the Old Testament. When, when you come to church uh, in 21st century America, you have certain expectations when you go to a church. Um, you would like to uh, have that church be clean, have it uh, be in good order, that, that it looks as if uh, people care about their church and about their God, right? That, those are some expectations. Um, at Bethlehem, one of, the, one of the things that we want people to experience when they come to church is uh, I say that I'd like everyone to feel as if they were a guest, at, uh, an honored guest at someone's home, whether they're members or guests or whoever, but that they feel like an honored guest in someone's home. Now, compare that expectation to that of the Old Testament, and it, it's, it's a whole lot different, the environment, okay? So when you went to church or the temple in the Old Testament, things were in order and things were taken care of, so that was similar. But the environment that you would experience, well, let's put it this way. You've never experienced anything like it here, and if you did, you'd probably not come back, okay? Because you'd think that I had, you know, gone off the deep end. Because every day at the temple, when you went, there was this huge object lesson every single day, and it had to do with death, and it had to do with killing, and it had to do with blood. Because every day when you went to the temple, there was the killing of bulls, goats, or lambs. It's never happened here. I mean... I will confess, last summer, there was this fly that was bothering me, and I rolled up some paper, and I swatted it, and I killed it. And I will confess that a couple years ago, we had an ant problem, and Colleen actually got these really cool ant traps, so it's really your fault, but we killed ants here at Bethlehem. Um, but that is a far different thing than taking this big animal with blood going through its veins and, and killing it in front of everyone for everyone to see. And in fact, I wanted to describe one special day every year. It's called um, Yom Kippur. This was uh, an Old Testament festival. Most of you have, have heard the phrase, um, but you probably don't know what happened on that day. On Yom Kippur, um, what would happen is the priest, the high priest, would bring out a vibrant, um, healthy bull in front of all the people kind of like me in front of you right here. And the priest would take 
the bull's throat, and this is pretty in your face, and it would slit the throat, and it would just let it die. And it purposely, they would purposely let all the blood run out of that big artery in its neck all over the altar. Got your attention yet? And then uh, the priest would go over to the altar, take a bowl, put a whole bunch of the blood in it, and he'd go into the most holy place, which was the special room where um, God said his presence dwelt, and, and he would take the blood, still warm, I'm sure, in his hand, and start flinging it on this big box called the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would take the blood, and, and kids, don't do this at home, okay? Start flinging it on the ground, okay? All over the, the, near the Ark of the Covenant, and on the walls, and blood everywhere. And, and then the priest would, would come out of the room, and, and they'd have a goat for him. And I won't describe it again, but do the exact same thing with the goat, and then take the blood as it bled out, and fling it all over the most holy place, and then he'd come out a third time, and they'd have a third goat. And guess what he did? Now he didn't kill it. That He didn't kill the third one. The third one, now filled, you can imagine, filled with blood all over the place, all over his hands. He'd take his blood-stained hands, and he'd put his hands on the goat, and, and, and he'd confess the sins of the nation, and in a symbolic way, transfer that from the nation onto the goat. You know what that goat was called? Some of you know the scapegoat, exactly. And then they'd lead the goat out into the wilderness. And what happened to the goat, they don't know. Probably died in one way or another. And do you know what Yom Kippur means? I'll give you the easy part. Day of? Huh. Day of atonement. Our word for the day. Because in the Old Testament, Atonement, yeah, it means to make up for a wrong, had everything to do with blood, and lots and lots of it. Here's a, a verse, Leviticus 17, that kind of describes this a little bit. The, it says, the life of a creature is in the blood. Basically, if you have no blood, you have no life, Right? And I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Why the blood? Well, in part because when we sin like we do every day, we tend to minimize it, but God wants us to understand how big it is. And that when we, when the world, when anyone sins, their eternal life ultimately, if there was no Savior, would be taken from them. And so this sacrifice of a bull, of a goat, was blood for your blood, life for your life. And one commentator said, uh, a 21st century commentator said, um, no modern-day preacher can ever preach a sermon as vivid and as vibrant and as sort of memorable as what happened in the temple every single day in the Old Testament as blood poured out from animals and all over the altar. Here's a New Testament passage that talks about blood and forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, 
There is no forgiveness. And, and so when you think of biblical atonement, you can't really understand it if you don't go back to blood. Here's our fill-in, our next fill-in. Blood, biblically, is needed for atonement. To make up for something wrong, because it's a life for a life, blood for our blood, blood is needed for, that, for there to be atonement. Now, we don't do that anymore. And thank the Lord. I don't think I'd be a pastor. Uh, I know I couldn't be a farmer, you know, a, a cattle farmer or whatever, um, rancher. Um, I, I couldn't be a pastor if we needed to do that. So why don't we do it anymore? Well, there's this letter in the New Testament called Hebrews. And it, it connects more better than any other book. It's all about connecting the Old Testament to Jesus. That's the whole book. And taking these Old Testament uh, rituals and, and seeing how Jesus fulfilled them. And so in the book of Hebrews, it talks about why we don't do it anymore. All right? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So here specifically those laws about sacrifices and worship laws, all of those were a shadow or a foreshadowing of the things that were coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Those sacrifices, they don't truly atone for sin, truly. If it could, then would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed with one sacrifice, once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. <laughs> when you brought your healthy lamb that you probably helped deliver and nursed to health, nothing at all wrong with it because you couldn't bring a blemished lamb to the temple. When you brought that perfect lamb and gave it to the priest and then the priest kills it right in front of you, it's going to remind you of something. And the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us, it reminds us of our sins or it did for them. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All of this was a telling of their sorrow over sin, but it had no real power. Um, let, let me give you an illustration of this. So let's imagine that you have a rule in your house that uh, there's no eating or drinking in the living room. And for me, I don't have to imagine. That is a rule that my wife has, and it, it, I found out it does apply to husbands, too. Um, I tried to push it, but, uh, you know, I learned. No eating or drinking in the living room, okay? And let's imagine that your five, a five-year-old takes a, a nice purple cup of grape juice and decides to disobey mom while she's upstairs. And what's going to happen if a five-year-old takes a cup of grape juice into the living room? It's going to spill. It just, it's just like a principle. It just happens. You know, it's going to spill. And so let's imagine that happens, and it's on the couch, and it's all over the carpet. And unless you get to it right away, and even then it may not work, but unless you get to it right away, it's going to stain. And you might, in fact, have to replace some carpeting, buy a rug to put over it, maybe even buy a new couch, depending on how much it was. And, and this five-year-old feels 
horrible about what happened, truly repentant, truly sorrowful for that disobeying. And so what he does is he, he goes to his, uh, his, his art supply and he takes out a piece of paper and, and he, he draws a, a dollar bill and he, and he puts on it a one and then has like 20 zeros behind it. You know, all, it's like two lines worth of zeros and he colors it green, cuts it out, and then he gives it to dad and says, dad, I'm really sorry. Here, this will help you pay for, for things. <laughs> now, it's cool that your son is sorrowful. And as a parent, once you've taken your own time out to not be as mad as what I would be, um, it, it's neat to be able to say, son, I, I forgive you. But when the carpenter shows up and he asks for his money and you pull out the one gazillion dollar bill that your son wrote and drew, how much is that going to help? <laughs> the bulls and goats, they, they, were, they were a way of a five-year-old saying, I'm sorry, my, my sin is big. The priest, thank you, but... It had no real power. It had no real value. Who did? Verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering, God, you didn't desire. Uh, yeah, God asked for those offerings, but that's not truly what he needed. But you prepared a body for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you weren't truly pleased. Yeah, he was pleased about their sacrifices, but not, it, it didn't really atone for things. So then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the Old Testament, in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God, O, o Father. Verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, all of the blood, the gallons and gallons of blood in the Old Testament. In fact, you may not know this, but the, the altar on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem had its own drainage system just for all the blood. Because there was gallons and gallons, and it would all drain out into the Kidron Valley right next to it. All this blood, all of it was a river running to Jesus. To the true sacrifice that we needed. Not bulls, not goats, but a perfect substitute who is willing to suffer that which he did not deserve for the rest of the people. And so our next fill-in, only Jesus' blood could truly atone for our sins. Only Jesus' blood. <laughs> and sometimes maybe you've thought this, maybe you haven't thought that deeply about this, but, but why such a gory death for Jesus? Here's why. It was about the blood. I mean, think about the blood all over Good Friday and beginning Monday, Thursday evening. The abuse that Jesus took, the hitting over the head by, by sticks by the, the Roman soldiers, the crown of thorns pressed down, um, blood trickling down his face. The flogging, I mean, that was bloodier than the crucifixion. Uh, flogging is a whipping, but on the ends of the whips, there's little pieces of bone or, or metal or whatever uh, that will kind of dig into your skin, into your back. And blood was everywhere. It is likely that the reason Jesus could not carry his cross to Calvary, uh, this is for sure, was at least 
related, if not entirely, because he had so much blood loss. There was blood everywhere. And crucifixion, blood in his hands, blood on his feet, blood out of his side once he died. Why all of this blood? Because it was the blood that would atone. And God did not want us to miss this very clear imagery that the blood of Christ, that the blood of his son, would truly atone for us and make up for our wrongs. For who? For you. But I'm not pretty. Says who? But I, I only shot 20% from three-point line this year. So what? But I made low A on a roll instead of high. But my quarter didn't go so well. So that means you're not valuable? What, what did Jesus pay for you? He shed his blood. There was a, a family. It's a true story from what I understand. There's a, a family who was in a car accident. Some of you maybe have heard this story before. And uh, the, the youngest son um, was in desperate need of a, a blood transfusion. And, and so his older brother, who was only eight years old, had the same blood type as his brother. And uh, so the, the dad kind of took his son, the older one, aside and said, um, Danny, uh, would you be willing to give, some, give your blood so that your, your brother could live? And Danny thought about it for a moment and said, yeah, dad, I'll do it. I'll be brave. And so they immediately got the IV out, took a pint of blood from, from Danny, and, and gave it to his brother Mike, and, and Mike was okay. And, and right after that was done, Danny starts crying a little bit. And Dad goes over there and goes, you know, Danny, what's, what's up? Why are you crying? He said, Dad, when am I going to die? And, and his dad's like, what? What do you mean, what are you going to die? Here's the thing, Danny thought that the, the decision he had made was to give all of his blood <laughs> so that his brother would live and yet was willing to give it because he valued his brother, right? Jesus gave all his blood so that, our last fill-in, so that you might, um, next one, sorry, that you might have both forgiveness and value. Your value and your forgiveness is found in this one word, atonement. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this, uh, these words that you've given us in the Bible and that we've had a chance to study these last four weeks. We'd ask that you, uh, through today's message, remind us of, of the, the, the lengths that your son went, that we might live, that he gave all of his blood, that we might live forever, that he suffered hell so that we may, that we don't need to. And Lord, help us to find both our forgiveness and our value in that one word, atonement. Lord, this week we also keep in our prayers uh, Pastor Matt Ewart and his wife Amy as they consider uh, serving the Lord here at Bethlehem. We ask you to be with his current congregation, Emmanuel, and, uh, and remind both congregations and Matt and Amy that, that you are the Lord of the church and that you will guide things uh, for the, the working of your glory and according to your plan. Lord, at this time, we also take a moment to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.